Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Hello to all our listeners on Main Street and on Wall Street. Welcome to another episode of Odeon Capital Conversations. This is episode five. And on this episode, we're going to take a look back on what we have covered those past four episodes from the money supply to inflation to housing and China and ask, what does all this mean for investors and your money? I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We'll be right back after this. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Okay, Matt and Dick, this is episode five. We've covered a lot in the past four episodes, and we'll take a closer look back in a moment at our past four episodes and see what all this means for investors. But first, what's your take on the markets? There's a lot going on out there, a lot of tensions in the world with Ukraine and Russia and here at home, inflation and expectations of interest rate rises and just continuing supply chain problems and general fears and uncertainties. Well, I'd like to spend a few minutes on this, uh, you know, Ukraine Russian thing, both from a historical perspective and from uh, the idea of it could go in this direction or that direction, which I'll explain in a second, uh, because I think it's uh, it's something that's going to be with us for, for months and months, um, if not years. But basically, I, I start, you know, from history. And, and history, you know, would be how does the German experience relate to what we're seeing being done by Russia at the present time. And I think the um, correlations are enormous. In other words, at the end of World War I, the French uh, you know, were absolutely livid with the Germans for having attacked them twice in a 30-year uh, period. Uh, and, and basically, they tried to hit Germany with whatever, uh, if you will, uh, pressure they could to make Germany uh, insolvent and incapable of rising again. Uh, so first was the reparations. Second, obviously, was splitting up the country. Third, when the reparations weren't paid, the, the French army went into Germany and annexed a portion of Germany. So when, when Hitler, you know, came into power, you know, he had to, you know, write the, if you will, economy of Germany. And then, you know, he went looking at where there were German citizens and saying that, you know, we need these people back. So he took the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. He uh, did, did Anschluss with Austria. Uh, he uh, then, of course, attacked Poland, which started World War II. But, you know, if you take a look at Russia, uh, Russia basically, or the Soviet Union, the Soviet Something Union was broken up in the yeah. same sense that uh, Russia was, that uh, Germany was. And it's Putin's goal, in, in my estimation, to do what Hitler did, to put back the empire. And what is he doing? Well, he first took Chechnya back, then he went into Azerbaijan, then he went into uh, you know the Crimea and Don, Don's, whatever they call that division. Uh, then you know he was in Kazakhstan. Uh, I think that's, I, I think he still has troops there. He was called in to put down riots. He took a chunk of Georgia. He went into Syria. And in each case, he was testing. He was testing to see how far can I go? And if I can go far enough, you know, I'm going to continue to push. So now he's testing again. And what is he testing? He's testing whether the United States will actually do what they say they want to do. 
and he's testing to determine whether NATO, in fact, is a cohesive organization that will step up to defend, you know, Europe. And what he's finding, I think, at this point is that the United States is not willing to put the heavy sanctions on him that, that he wanted. And he's finding that NATO is not cohesive. Uh, if you listen to what Mario Draghi said this morning, you know, uh, in Italy, they don't want to put, my impression is they don't want to put any uh, problems onto Russia if Russia steps into the Ukraine, and neither does Spain or Portugal. So if, if we, we then have to start to think of which direction is he going to go in, if he is going to basically take the attitude that the United States cannot do anything, that NATO is not going to do anything, he will take the Ukraine in a heartbeat. If he takes the Ukraine in a heartbeat, what does that mean? Well, it means the United States has got to spend a lot of money on military equipment to put in all these countries around, you know, the Ukraine. Who's going to fund that? Has to be the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is going to have to print the money to give to the government so they can buy the military equipment so they can put it in place. All right, so then what happens? The, the Federal Reserve supposedly is worried about inflation. It's worried about increasing interest rates. How can they increase interest rates if they're printing money to give to the U.S. government to stave off you know, the, the thrust coming from Russia in the Ukraine? And then, of course, what if he decides the United States is you know, the way the UK was this morning, it's going to shut access to their banking system, you know, that NATO is going to become cohesive. And then, you know, he's basically going to back off. And if he backs off, then essentially, the, the, the Federal Reserve is not going to have to come up with the money. And, you know, we're not going to see a whole bunch of foreign nations buying US treasuries, because there's no, you know, threat that makes them want to do that. And therefore, they can go with a tougher, if you will, approach to fighting inflation. So, that, I mean, this thing is really fascinating at, at every level. Well, he's certainly strong-willed. He's also a gambler. And we'll see, does his latest gamble pay off? But my gosh, you look at what he's done and what he's achieved uh, with his uh, bully ways cash reserves of 638 billion the russians have now because of the way he played the oil game amazing yeah well i mean basically when he took over as president this country was not a country it was a disaster area uh with not enough food on the shelves with people out of work uh and what he did was he 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 worked with actually american banks citigroup in particular uh, he has a very close relationship there. And he basically got a plan to stabilize the economy, which he did by selling off a whole bunch of companies that were owned by the Russian government, uh, half of which he and his friends own now. But the point is, that was the first step. The second step was, as I said, he, he tested. The third step was he, he actually, um, you know, defaulted on the debt of the Soviet, of, I keep saying the Soviet Union, of Russia a few years ago. Although he thinks it's the, he's trying to recreate the old Soviet Union. Well, that's right. But the bottom line was he took all, he had the, the time to do it. He took all of the right steps. He put the Russian economy back in a, a stronger, it's not a strong economy, but in, in a stronger position. He has total control. He has now a staggering amount of money because of the way he's played the oil game. So he's now testing us, testing us again. I mean, think of all the countries I mentioned, you know, Chechnya, Azerbaijan, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, Georgia, Syria, you know, uh, the Crimea, you know, in, in, in each case, in each case, he didn't get any response. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted. Dick, what does this mean for the markets if the situation deteriorates further? Well, it's it's initially going to be very negative because basically, if if there's a uh, a war in the Ukraine, if Europe now has to you know build up their defenses, it's it's going to be costly for every country, and it's going to be uh, it's going to it's going to result in inflation. Higher, well, obviously, higher prices are inflation. It's going to result in higher interest rates. It's going to result in, uh, if we put the sanctions in, in place, 
uh, a restricted flow in in trade. It's going to re it's going to be reflected in multiple areas, all of which are not good for the market. Could it seize up the global economy? It, well, it certainly uh, has the potential to do that. Whether it's going to go that far or not, you know, I have no idea. I don't know. Matt, I think this is the scariest time I've been alive for. Um, the idea that that Putin is one, as Dick said, so far not met real resistance in reuniting the old Soviet Union under the pretense of these are Russians that want to be Russian. They don't want to be Georgian. They don't want to be Ukrainian. They want to be Russian. And now we're, you've got the LPL and the DPR, you know, declaring independence in air quotes and then asking for recognition and giving the justification for peacekeepers to come in again in air quotes. Um, you know, com the comparison to Hitler is obviously closer in history, but I think the real comparison is Peter the Great, who yeah, started yeah. off by taking yeah. um, basically Crimea was the old Azov. That was what Peter the Great took from the Swedes initially. And then he moved on to Poltova, where he basically won Ukraine. And, you know, he spent 20 years kind of doing what Putin did, which was just, you know, tiny little curtains here and there, you know, just trying to show his show his strength. And then eventually he just went for it and built a great Russia. And the idea that Putin, you know, it doesn't seem like he responds to international, quote unquote, respect. He responds, I'm guessing maybe he'll respond to actual force meets force. But so far, we're not willing to do that. And what scares me and why I say it's the scariest time is we have two nuclear nations that are basically at this throw in the rest of the nuclear nations in the EU and then throw in China that realize they have an opening to do something that they might want to do. And you don't even have to have a kinetic war to have this be the scariest time in our history because we are an open society and Putin could go to war with us in ways that we just are not ready for. They could shut off our internet. They could attack our internet and do denial of service. They could do, they could just go and clip cables and underneath the ocean and destroy global communication and global trade. They could blow up a few satellites and destroy our GPS system. So there's a lot of things that he could do that are basically, you know, they're definitely acts of war, but they're not attacking American people directly that could really harm our economy and could really harm the global economy and could really harm just the normal way of things. And so I think it's a very perilous time. And, you know, unfortunately, I feel like the West is leaderless and Putin is a very smart man. You, you go and watch his speech to the, the Russian version of the WEF, he gave a four-hour Q&A session in September, and he laid it all out. I mean, you can go and listen to it on YouTube. And then at the end of December, he gave another two-hour press conference where he again laid out his strategy. He cites numbers. He knows his uh, the, the natural gas storage capacities country by country in Europe. I mean, he is not a dumb person, and he's not a reckless you know, cowboy out there. He has some sort of strategic plan and we don't. And it's very scary right now for me. What amazes me is the lack of valuable intelligence coming out of Russia. You know, we're supposed to have this very sophisticated intelligence network in the US and spread across the globe. And yes, the lack of good information that we can use amazes me. I mean, why weren't there some sleepers it, within the bureaucracy in, in Moscow for years. Where are they? Where, where's the information? Oh, they, they have it. They have well, it. They know, exact, they know exactly what he's going to do. They, they, it's, so is that, is that why um, Biden keeps saying he's going to invade Russia? So, so they have advance on that, you think? Well, yeah. But, but in addition to which, you know, we, we have all of the capabilities that Russia has, and, and we can listen in on what's going on in Russia. Um, but I mean, the, the, the key thing is, he, he is a czar. He's got an unlimited lifetime position. The guy in China is an emperor. And what do we do now if uh, three weeks from now, you know, he, the, the, the Chinese give an ultimatum to Taiwan as to what they want done to make closer the relationship between the two. Remember, these, this czar and this emperor are working very closely together, you know, in terms of what they're doing on, this, on the stage. We, we knew that, you know, once the uh, Olympics were over, because he did not want to, you know, cause any problem with, with China in that, in, or Xi Jinping on, on, on that situation, that he was going to become more aggressive. The Olympics are over, and he's more aggressive. 
So, you know, the, the issue is, is the American hegemony about to fall apart? Is, is you know, are we, you know, think about it. What do you see on television? You see the United States getting kicked out of Vietnam. You see the United States getting kicked out of Afghanistan. And today you saw the United States getting kicked out of the Ukraine, right? We don't see the United States coming in as a powerful, you know, uh, antidote to any one of these areas. We see the United States getting weaker and weaker and weaker, more and more in debt. You know, allies not tied to us. That's not their problem. We're going to talk about a lot of those issues in a moment, and we have to project power is what I'm saying there. And on the intelligence front, yeah, we have some excellent operatives. uh, Certainly, they deserve credit. But what I really meant was we need them at the very highest levels of the Kremlin that they can read Putin's mind, and we can counteract that with some kind of maneuvering. Matt just told you what Putin's mind is. Uh, (laughs) He's right. It's Peter yeah. the Great. He's crafty well, and very well, bright well, and intact. I think he looks on the West as in moral decline and perhaps economic decline. He has all those cash reserves and he looks at where America is on all the money spending and he's probably laughing. Well, what, whether we, he's laughing or not, czar after czar have rebuilt, if you will, the um, Russian empire. And he is attempting to rebuild the Russian Empire also, and he's doing it, and he's doing it very effectively. I mean, I spent two hours yesterday, maybe three, actually, listening to his Security Council. It was live on YouTube. Um, they provided the you know, English translator, and he told you exactly what he plans to do. He, I mean, he made it very clear that he wants Ukraine to, one, give up NATO ambitions and give up offensive capabilities. He wants the NATO members that used to be um, part of the Soviet Union, so Lithuania, Estonia, um, Latvia, uh, Poland, to ret- lose their any any weapons that were not there prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He wants the weapons re- withdrawn. He wants the troops withdrawn. And it seemed he didn't quite say it, but he also wants them to withdraw from being members of NATO. So I mean, he's made it very clear what he wants. He's not he's not he's not out there like hiding and 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 dodging. I mean, he. He broadcasts this stuff on live TV. All we have to do is listen. The real question is, and you know, we 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 can talk about what America's weaknesses are, but the truth is, you go back and look at World War One and World War Two, and it took a lot to get America involved in these wars. I mean, we yeah. we were pacifists going into World War One, and then it took a couple of years to get the army together and and go and do something about it. You look at World War Two, and we didn't have. Um, D-Day until three and a half years after Pearl Harbor was bombed because we spent those years gearing up because we're far away by oceans, we're far away by air. So we're, we, we are left to be able to do that. So we're a sleeping tiger if we want to be. The question is, how far can he go before we decide we're going to do it? And then the next question is, and I think Dick said this in his opening gambit, was the the idea is actually, I think, to break up NATO. And you know, you push far enough and you'll really find out where Germany stands with regards to, you know, Lithuania and the Suwalki Gap and Poland. And if they can break up NATO, then all bets are off. Now, this is a financial podcast. and Yeah, but it's implications for investors. Yeah. And I, I, I sat, you know, I was looking at this, the, you know, the stock market this morning and last night, and it was a wild roller coaster ride uh, based on the futures. And you know, you woke up this morning, it wasn't nearly as bad as it looked like when I went to bed last night, because people started realizing, hey, if this goes the way it looks like it could go, the Fed might not have to raise rates nearly as much yeah. to, to tame inflation. All of a sudden, the stock market starts looking attractive again, which is not the reason you want it to be attractive. But if if Putin is doing the Fed's jobs for them, they're going to get bailed out once again. Take one last point before we start looking at our early episodes. Well, well, no. Basically, uh, if if he goes into the Ukraine, the fear factor around the world will be so great that billions and billions of dollars will flow into the uh, U.S. Treasury, and the U.S. Treasury uh, will therefore be able to 
do whatever it needs to do without going to the Fed and saying, print some money so I can do this, number one. And number two, the Fed will have justification for not increasing interest rates. Uh, so, you know, from, from the standpoint of the Fed, you know, if, if Putin goes into the Ukraine, they're going to love it. Uh, so explain that, that to some listeners. So this, the money will come into the Fed because we're a safe haven. Yeah, well, that's right. In other words, we 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 saw that with with the, even the ten year interest rate, you know, earlier today. And money from a, from all big investors, small investors. People so want their money protected. They want their money protected in a currency that they believe is safe. They want it protected where they think that the payments are going to occur without any misses in in the payments, and that's the United States. So the next the auctions that the Treasury has, you'll see more and more foreign money coming in to buy up, up those auctions. If the foreigners buy up the auctions, the Fed doesn't have to do it. If the Fed doesn't have to do it, doesn't have to print. Doesn't have to print, it doesn't have to push interest rates up so high. So there's, there's a whole bunch of positive things that come to the Fed if uh, if Putin does what Putin wants to do. Um, but, but, you know, that's, that's, that's not what I hope happens. Well, we'll wait and see. You're listening to Audion Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Dick is the Chief Financial Strategist at Audion and Matt is co-founder and managing partner. We're on episode five, gentlemen, and we're going to take a look back at the four episodes, uh, go through them and what it all means for investors and your money. And we've covered a lot of ground here. And episode one, uh, Dick, you kind of got our appetite whetted and you had us thinking a lot about the the Fed and how indebted it is. And you talked about the rapid rise in supply of money, how that could be an issue for some players in the market. A quick summary of the points you brought up there on episode one, all this money supply was creating some kind of mayhem. Well, what, what we were saying in that episode essentially is that uh, the United States government runs huge deficits and they they normally would have those deficits paid for by uh, the Social Security Fund, foreigners, uh, American citizens, and that had stopped happening so that the Federal Reserve had to start to buy those deficits. And when the Federal Reserve buys them, it means that it's pushing inflation uh, because they're printing money. If Social Security fund buys them or a foreigner buys them, it doesn't matter because you're not creating new funds to do so. You're just shifting funds from one pocket to the other. But if the Federal Reserve is, is buying the deficits, which, you know, I, my figures only go up to the third quarter of uh, last year, they bought 70% of the net increase in the deficit. If they do it, they got to print money to do it. That increases the money supply dramatically. And that's the basis of why about a year and a half ago, we started arguing that inflation was going to get out of control, double digits, all this other stuff. And we suggested that people had to protect themselves from, you know, that increase in, uh, in inflation by buying hard goods. Farmland being number one, most important, but, you know, we think precious metals, we think, uh, you know, <clears throat> you know, basic things like copper or, or coal or, or other, you know, hard goods. Who could be the losers in this? Because you brought this up. Um, if the Fed shrinks its balance sheet, somebody's going to be hurt here. Yeah, everybody's going to be hurt. I mean, you know, basically, it, if the prices rise rapidly, uh, then the increase in income that we think is going to be so robust to carry the economy ahead, you know, is gone because it's going to be uh, inflation will be a tax on 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 the incomes of, of all Americans. Uh, the people who own fixed income securities, they're going to get blasted because as interest rates go up, those securities go down in value. Uh, people who are invested in, you know, securities in companies which are attached to financial uh, institutions are going to lose money. There's, the losers are everywhere. Well, you've said that the rapid rise in the money supply has been good for many startup, non-financial, uh, non-bank companies. So if we scale back, they're going to be hurt. They're going to go bankrupt. 
In other words, what we've seen every cycle, this is not, you know, it, it, it sounds like when you, when you say something that strident, they're going to go bankrupt, that, you know, I'm making some bold projection. No, it's just I only do things, I only say things which have happened before. I'm a believer that history rhymes or repeats or whatever you want to say. And what we've seen cycle after cycle is that when you build up uh, a lot of excess cash in the economy, you create a whole bunch of non-financial lenders. And when you tighten and the money is no longer available, those non-financial lenders go bankrupt. I fully believe that that will happen this time also. I mean, the amount of startups created in the past decade is phenomenal. I, I saw a stat 5.4 million new business applications were filed last year of the businesses launched in 2020, 78% or roughly four out of five establishments are still active. I mean, they're all over the map. So if we lose these innovators, it's a disaster. We won't lose them all, clearly, but if we lose well, a we high percentage, it's a disaster. These companies that you're talking about, you know, they're not all, they're not mainly innovators. They're people who uh, lend money, uh, you know, to business. But it's a crapshoot a lot of the time. We get all that. I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, I don't know how involved you've gotten in looking at non-financial tokens, but uh, you know, basically, you can go out and create a token, and that token can be used to buy a non an NFT, a non-financial token, and that non-financial token gives you access to things like playing video games, like uh, you know, being able to uh, you know. Uh, you, you get involved in other, you know, you know, non-financial uh, instruments, and if you're successful at it, you can get a a, a distributive, uh, if you will, currency like Ethereum, right? So, so the net effect is, how is that going to continue? How is that? That's not innovation. You know, we're not using this money only to build, uh, you know. Uh, the, these companies like Google and, and Facebook and, and you know Microsoft, we're using this this money for everything. Roll the dice, if you will. You, you keep mentioning buying land. It's a fantastic idea, I suppose, on, on hard assets. But land comes in all forms. Are you talking about development land? Are you talking about land for livestock and crops, or land that's ready to be rezoned, or land in in a swampland, or land in Manhattan? It's or do you buy it? It's securitized. I mean, how would you advise investors? Well, I, t I, I keep saying buy farmland. I say buy farmland. Now, why do I say do you go in farmland? and farm yourself or you get a manager? Well, it, basically, if you went back to uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany, um, essentially, people borrowed money and were able to bought a farm and were able to pay off the loan with the first crop because of the rise in prices because the crops go up in price dramatically, the land goes up in price dramatically. It was the very best investment you could have made if you were in Weimar, Germany, trying to make money in the disaster that that inflation created. Now, you know, basically, you know, if, you, if you're buying a productive asset, which is creating a real product that must be used, you'll benefit in an inflation because you're going to pay for that asset and those productive things that are being created with a depreciating dollar or a depreciating currency, and, and therefore the cost of buying them goes down, but the, the, the return on what you bought increases exponentially. Matt, what says you? I like what Dick is saying. Um, land, land is the one thing you can't make more of, and it holds up its value in, in an inflationary environment. And it's um, a very attractive asset if you think that inflation is going to spiral. I agree with you, Dick. It's just the whole, the whole ramifications of that. And we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations. And I'm here with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein, of Odeon Capital Group. So when we got to episode two, we looked more closely at inflation. It's tied into, as Dick would say, to the money supply and all those esoteric and simple things to understand and on many levels. Dick, you said that inflation is due to money supply growth stimulated by federal deficits. And you said 
back then in episode two inflation will not slow can you just kind of do a reprise of that and what investors and money people and consumers sh- should know about all this well you know there's two theories out there right now my theory again is i believe that history rhymes or repeats right and if that's true Open history rhyme I- yeah yeah <laughs> but any anyway if it's true uh th- then basically you know, we know that going back to the Roman Empire, we know looking at Egypt back in those days, in Byzantine times, we know uh, all the way up to Weimar, Germany, to Zimbabwe, you know, a few years ago, that if you continue to buy the debt of a country by printing its currency, you will increase the supply of the currency exponentially and that will result in a high level of inflation. And the only way you'll get rid of that inflation is through a significant recession. The other theory that's out there is, no, that's wrong. This time around is different. This time, it's not that that's causing the increase in prices. It's all these supply shortages. Um, And because of the supply shortages, you know, prices go up. Uh, Although why they should go up, I don't know, because if you're buying, if the supply is greater than the demand, well, that drive prices up. But anyway, the point is that uh, that that's the current theory. You know, the spike in oil prices that occurred this morning, that spike in oil prices is supposed to go away pretty quickly if if this thing calms down in in uh, in the Ukraine. Um, and you know, the, the people who are saying that are correct. There's no doubt about the fact that they're correct. But therefore, there is an element of the spiking in in, in prices that will come down. But that's not going to solve the core problem that if we want to continue to run these deficits and print money, we're not going to be able to stop inflation. So the Fed is going to shrink the balance sheet. That seems pretty clear. No? If they do, we're going to have a major recession. There's no way around it. They claim they would like to do. But think about it. We created... $6 trillion in the last two years. That's a 33% increase in the money supply of the United States. All right. If the Fed, and we did it keeping interest rates at record lows, if the Fed decides they're going to shrink the balance sheet, we're creating zero money. How can you go from creating $6 trillion to zero and interest rates going from close to zero to who knows where and assume that the economy is going to continue to move forward in, in the fashion that it did previously. Can't be done. So their hands are tied then if even they signal that intent. Well, you know, I think their hands are tied because this Fed, like every other Fed, as I've mentioned before, is not independent. It does what the government wants, except for just two times in history. But in, in, in other words, this Fed, you know, went way too far trying to make, you know, first the Trump people happy, then the Biden people happy. They, they lost complete control of their operations. They have a balance sheet in which they've got, you know, five-day paper that they're borrowing uh, money on, paying for the purchase of 10, 20, 30-year bonds, uh, mortgages. You, you can't do that. Uh, it, 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 if interest rates rise the way presumably they are, it's going to bite you pretty hard. And, and this Fed just blew it, in my view. Dick, you also spoke about financial instruments will decline in value. Yeah, if interest rates go up, the, mm-hmm. the value of the financial instrument goes down. You know, if interest rates go from 2% to 4%, something that is worth $100 goes from $100 to $80. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So any sort of overarching advice here for investors with our money? What should they do then to get through this? Well, I think- I mean, uh, we spoke about land earlier, so there's a certain sense that we're repeating ourselves, but in terms of inflation, I suppose the same applies again, buy land and hard assets. Yeah, I believe you should buy some gold. I believe you should have some some silver into your portfolio. I believe that uh, you you should buy things that people need uh, and buy them in 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 quantity. That's that's what you do now. If you can, if you know how to trade in the, in the commodities market, you buy copper. 
uh, copper is 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 good as gold. We'll we'll have to say, <laughs> okay. But uh, I think you buy you know commodities. I mean, I think that's important. I think you write a lot of calls on the uh, stocks that you own. Uh, I think you use puts to to hedge your position. There there are a lot of things that you can and should do to protect yourself. Overall, for equities, is it a good time to have money in equities? Are they going to continue? That's what I read. A lot of the pundits say, yeah, we're going to, maybe not what they initially expected at the start of the year, but they're going to hold up and going to be pretty stable there. Quite frankly, again, using the Weimar Republic in Germany, equities soared. They absolutely soared in price, you know, uh, through, through, through that period. They did extraordinarily well. Because you know the companies were showing massive increases in their earnings, the problem is that it's, the money couldn't buy any. It's phony baloney money. Yeah, I mean, at one point they were they were printing five million dollar, five whatever you call it, marks, five million yep. mark notes, and the five million mark notes wouldn't buy you a loaf of bread. So securities can go way up in value, but it's not going to make you any wealthier. I saw an interesting opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal today, two writers saying that the these I bonds, inflation bonds, you're limited to 10,000 now, but raise it up to 100,000 and you get 7.5%. What's, what's not to love about that, Matt? If you're the government, there's not a lot to love. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big payout, right? <laughs> I mean, the government can't uh, look. Be, to be honest, the government shouldn't be issuing those types of bonds because the the trick that they have to do is convince the buyers of the bonds that inflation is temporary or at least overstated using the CPI, while at the same time using inflation to actually decrease the the cost of repaying those bonds in in real dollars. And the reason stock markets go up in an inflationary environment, the reason land goes up in an inflationary environment isn't because it's going up in value. It's because it's being def- it's being inflated in value, which is exactly why you want to own real assets in an inflationary environment. Mm-hmm. If you're the government, I, I mean, why would you want to issue inflation bonds? That defeats the whole purpose of having a Fed, which, as Dick points out, does what the government wants. And they want to keep the, envi- the interest rates low while inflation decreases the total amount of debt relative to GDP. Um, it's the same trick that you know Weimar Germany was stuck with trying to do when they had to pay back all the reparations in gold-dominated do- terms while printing marks to keep their um, local population happy. So yeah. it, I, I think, yeah, if, if, if I were an investor, I would buy those I-bonds all day long if you could buy them in bigger amounts. Let's go to $10 million. Like, why, why stop at 100000 But it's not worth it at $10,000 for a lot of institutional investors and it's probably not worth it for the government to give it too much um too much more than ten thousand dollars per person because it's a gimmick it's not a real way of financing a government or giving people an inflation hedge it's kind of like a stimulus spending again yeah dick you want to come in and we'll take a look at this was a great topic we got a lot of reaction to it housing slums but final thought on what matt was saying there no, no. I mean, Matt's exactly correct. I mean, Matt knows far more about the bond market than I'll ever even understand. Uh, but, but what he says is exactly correct. On episode three, we looked at the idea of housing slums in America. And this comes straight from some research and studies done by Dick and Break it out again, Dick. You mentioned sort of the dysfunction in the markets. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac makes perfect sense. And you painted a very uh, distressing scenario. Could you just describe it again? Well, let, let, let me simplify it quite a bit. You turn on television today and you see all of these brokers who say, we'll buy your house for cash in three days. Doesn't Don't, don't, don't worry about you know uh, marketing. Don't worry about all this other stuff. You want to sell your house. Call us up, we'll buy it. All right. Now, who are they buying it for? They're buying it for large investor groups that want to own, you know, thousands and thousands. They do own thousands and thousands of houses. Now, why can the investor groups pay more than, you know, you or I uh, in terms of buying a house? Because they don't have to get a mortgage. 
this is all cash that they have, you know, from their investors. Uh, they're, they're not, you know, having to worry about coming up with a certain amount of down payment and a mortgage and a closing costs and all this other stuff. You know, they, they, they can pay more for the house than we can. They don't, by the way, but they, they could. Now, what happens when they get hold of these houses? Well, first, they charge fairly sizable rents to live in them or if they're apartment buildings, sizable rents to live in them, and they keep jacking up the price of the rent. Second, they basically uh, unbundle the services that you that you get. In other words, you want to use the mailbox, it's going to cost you 20 bucks a month. You want to use the dumpster, it's going to cost you 50 bucks a month. You, you want lighting in the, in the parking space, you're going to have to pay for the electricity. And, you know, you want the, the grass cut, you can't do it, we'll do it cost you 50, 60, 70 bucks a month. So what, what, what we're seeing is, you know, the, the investor groups becoming dominant landlords in, in the United States. Again, they're ultimately going to own millions of houses. Uh, they, they therefore uh, don't put money into improving the property the way you or I would do with our houses they put money into getting a bigger profit so they can go buy some more houses so they can rent more. So what happens to those areas where the renters own, uh, I'm sorry, where the, the, the investors own the large number, the largest number of houses? The value of those houses go down. The, the, there's no money being put into, you know, the, the local economy. Uh, the, the taxes have to go up to cover the cost of policing and fire. And, and you know, we, you know we, we've seen it in Cabrini-Greens. We've seen it in Watts. We've seen it in Harlem. We saw it in, in Scully Square in Boston. You know, we saw it in Newark. It, 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 it is something that we've seen for decades, for hundreds of years in the United States. You take when individuals or households buy the house, what happens? They immediately start to put money into it. They immediately want the neighborhood improved. Businesses are attracted to come, you know, a, a, a 7-Eleven store, a, you know, a restaurant. There's more labor that builds up in the community. That leads to, you know, other, other businesses coming in. And you, you, you have, you know, the community with, with good tax, uh, taxable income showing improvements in the, in the general area. Uh, you have services to the population. You have major successes, Columbia, Maryland, you know, uh, Roanoke, Virginia. I mean, you know, we, we know we know what happens. We have the examples. You know, we, we've seen it. We know it. So what are we doing in the United States right now? Number one, we've crippled Fannie and Freddie because the government got greedy and took them over and it's taking 100% of their profits. We've We've, uh, you know, created all this money and these low interest rates, which I mentioned before, and essentially we've forced a shift in who's taking the housing and we're allowing the people who are taking the housing to drive these costs up. We've got zoning boards all over the place that are preventing, you know, the supply from increasing. I've had builders in California tell me that it takes anywhere from six to eight years to take a piece of raw land to a developed state in if you you in order to meet all of the requirements that the state the county the cities in California put on you so i think i think we're building slums all over the united states so we have a real crisis here and you you've sent out some notes on this um and i'm going to share them uh, in an environment when the economy is headed towards recession your words housing stimulus is very likely Expect a number of government programs to stimulate this growth. Finally, your words, there are multiple investment opportunities here. Yeah. And I think that uh, basically, uh, if you take a look at every, you know, recession going, I don't know, going back 100 years, I'm going to say, you know, it, housing, the government always leans on housing to start it. And when they created the Federal National Mortgage Association in 1938, you know, they had a tool for providing money to 
to create more housing activity, building for house for households, not for for people who are going to buy and rent. You know, when you got to the the cities being burnt down in in city eight in 1968, 1970, we we made a commitment as a nation to build 26 million housing units to be sold to households because we believed you know, similar to the depression, similar to that era, that if you put people in houses that they own, they will create value, which you, you can't, you can't yeah. ignore. And in, in the smaller recessions, you always had Fannie Mae, uh, Federal National Mortgage Association at that point, stepping up and buying more mortgages. You always had the SNLs stepping up and lending more and you built houses. Houses were how you got out of these recessions time after time after time. And I don't see any reason why it's going to happen again. It looks as if housing prices could continue to rise again this year. I mean, the shortage is just amazing. I hear story after story. And we brought this up on that episode, Matt, about these opportunity zones, which don't get a lot of play in the media. Are they an investment opportunity to sort of capital tax advantages? Oh, the opportunity zones are amazing if you can take advantage of it. I, I wouldn't use those as a <coughs> as a way to help solve our housing crisis. I think Dick is exactly right when he talks about, you know, it takes seven or eight years to build a house in certain communities. That's the real problem. It's not it's not the opportunity zones. The opportunity zones are being used sometimes, you know, to build apartment buildings or something that might help alleviate the housing, but more often than not, they're being used as post office boxes for online businesses that really aren't based there as a way to um, reduce the tax burden of the successful businesses using that zip code. But in terms of, you know, what when we're saying we're building slums, it's not that we're building slums, we're not building anything at all. And the and the housing inventory that we have is turning into slums and and you know you have these bills that are going through legislatures like the one in Oregon and the one that might be that's being proposed in the New York legislature which is basically banning evictions for almost any reason including non-payment and it, it goes so far as you know if if you rent a, an apartment to someone in their name and then they sublease that apartment illegally or without your consent to a roommate and then the roommate takes over and you try to evict them, you can't. That type of, of legislating leads to people not wanting to invest in homes because there's no way you're ever going to get a return. So it reduces the supply. If you can't evict tenants or raise rates, then you don't have any incentive at all to upkeep the property. And so that's where the slums come from. It's these laws of unintended consequences that basically turn landlords into permanent title holders of properties that aren't really re- providing a return on their capital. And that disincentivizes anyone from going in. Realtor.com this morning came out and said they estimated the US housing market right now is 5.71 million houses short of demand. And you have a record 1.7 million single family units, including rental units under construction. So even if, and this is assuming there's no population growth, and you know, I, I don't know what's going on at the border, but you know, you hear these rumors of one to two million people coming in, without any change, it would take four years for the housing supply to get into balance, and that's not counting the immigrants and birth rates. So we have a real problem, but it seems to me that it's not coming from the Fed. It seems to me that it's coming from local governments, state governments, and 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 overzealous zoning boards. Yeah, so so fair play on both sides for the landlord and for the resident, and maybe empower local communities to build those homes in areas which may have certain blight or whatever, and trust the people. Yeah. We're going to look at episode four, uh, go back on that. That was our last week. So it's all fresh in our mind and we can revisit it. Been a few wrinkles stick on this one and you probably picked up on it. Um, China and the dollar. And you were talking about China playing hardball and displacing the dollar. Well, I mean, I think that uh, what you're seeing, uh, again, going back to what we started off with, with Russia and the Ukraine, is what what is the tool that the United States is going to use to crimp Russia's uh, military expectations. It's going to be the banking system. They're, they're going to do what the supposedly, if, if, if Biden follows through with it, uh, the United Kingdom today put out that they would not allow the five Russian banks to access their financial system. 
Okay, so so the net effect is if you're Russia and China, and you know that the United States has this enormous power because they control the dollar and through the dollar banking systems all over the world, you want to break it. You want to make sure that you are not going to be impeded by anything that you know the United States might want to do uh, in terms of, of, of uh, turning you away from the financial system, the global financial system. So what are they doing? They're building another currency, the yuan. Uh, I guess it's pronounced yuan. Uh, but they're, they're building this currency and they're doing it in a methodical way. Remember, you got a czar. And an emperor, they don't have to worry about losing their power. They're going to be there for you know decades, and they have the time to do it slowly and methodically. And they are doing it. And and in China's, you know, China is now in position where um, they are able to deal with banks anywhere in the world, which was not the case to, you know, 20 years ago. Where you know they've got 150 countries in the world that owe them money because they've loaned money to those people, where they've cut deals with uh, their client states like maybe Iran, even Russia, North Korea, to, to start doing business in the one. They've set up uh, their Asian interdevelopment company, which is exactly the same as the World Bank or, or the IMF. Uh, and you know they're moving slowly, methodically. They're getting deeper and deeper into the system. And ultimately, since we're getting weaker and weaker, because all we want to do is create, you know, trade deficits and, and government deficits, uh, they're going to take they're going to take over. They're, their currency is going to become the prime one, in my view. You use the word inertia is keeping the dollar um, up there and keeping it stronger than it should be realistically. Some people may have been a little not totally clear about that. People in the know clearly know you're talking about complacency and not paying attention. Is that what you meant by inertia? No, what I mean by inertia is we have financial system that functions now on the dollar and it's going to be expensive and wrenching to break that system down. So the, the desire to break it down for people other than Iran and North Korea and Russia, you know, the, the desire to break it down is not there. That's the inertia. The inertia is you got a system. The system is working. Don't mess with it. And leave it alone. Yeah, that's the inertia I'm talking yeah. about. Oh, I was going to reaffirm what you're saying about the dollar. I think, you know, about a month ago when, when Biden was out there saying Putin's going to invade Ukraine and not, not we weren't sure if he was reflecting reality, the talk was some of the sanctions were going to be to remove Russia from the SWIFT system, which is the U.S. dollar. Yeah, Basically, it's the hegemony that keeps the U.S. dollar the reserve currency. And eventually, it was pulled off the table as we're not going to punish them that harshly. At least that's how they portrayed it. And I think it actually, the real reason is if we withdrew SWIFT from China and Russia or just Russia, they would it would motivate them to go to the alternative system. Like, it, it it's a it's a tool you can only use once, but it's going to be self-destructive when we do it. And I think it shows that if we really were strong and believed that the U.S. dollar had universality in terms of being the global reserve currency, the, the swift um, ban to Russia would be on the table. But it actually shows our weakness mm. because it can't be on the table. Otherwise, it would accelerate the U.S. dollar's decline. Good point. Um, China, during the past week, said, oh, uh, you know, the territorial integrity of Ukraine should be recognized, firing a shot there across the bow uh, at Russia. But was that just gamesmanship or is it disinformation or what? Well, Putin believes that also. He just believes that history argues that, uh, you know, going back to Peter the Great, history argues that it's always been part of Russia and it always should be part of Russia. And that, you know, it's like taking New York State out of the United States uh, and saying that it's a separate republic and it's kind of function on its own. Uh, but the point is, you know, that, that's that's the mindset. So saying that the territorial integrity should be protected, what does that mean? Mm. By whom? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be protected by the Ukrainians or by the Russians? I, I, so I don't think that statement means anything. You know, and, and, and by the way, this China thing, I apologize, just... I read something last week which just was chilling, and that is that uh, China's control of free speech in the United States is becoming greater and greater because, you know, the NBA refuses 
to upset China in any way, shape, or form because they want to grow there. The American Hollywood, the American film yeah. system, which is supposedly uh, so independent and, and, and you know liberal in its thinking, refuses to put out any films that that portray China in a, in a negative fashion. Whereas the Chinese, you know, the Chinese, uh, you know, entertainment is is creating more and more films which are very anti-American, but. We don't do anything about it. I mean, we keep our mouths shut because we want to make the money we can make in China, and therefore free speech, you know, gets put on the side so that we can make sure we don't upset the Chinese overlords. Yeah, well, there's at least one famous Hollywood icon who hasn't made any decent movies for the past 10 years, and it's supposedly because he made one movie that was critical of China, and the financiers, the story goes, pulled out of his next project. Yeah. I, I think I think we're confusing a few different things. I mean, first off, if we were all Hollywood studio executives trying to make money, we would be making movies that are attractive to a Chinese audience. That's just the way the world works. Yeah. You try yeah. to you try to make money where you can make money. The the failure here is the U.S. government is basically exporting their lack of aggression or lack of spine or lack of policy in China to the NBA or to the movie producers because the reality is, is it's not the movie producers' job to determine what american policy is or is not in china it's not the nba's job to determine what policy is or is not in china it does reveal you know someone like lebron james you know it reveals their character and they they don't have a strong character and they're not very intelligent when it comes to international policies but the, the end of the day is if the u.s government wanted to take a strong stance against china they could and it and the nba and hollywood would have to follow but the u.s government has not and so it, just because the u.s government is derelict in its duty. I don't think blaming the businesses that are trying to do what's best for their own shareholders and their employees, which is basically make the most money possible, is to me, it seems like it's um, hiding the real problem here, which is that America doesn't have a great position towards China. We we thought in late 1990s, early 2000s, by letting them into the WTO and opening up, up trade in a more free way, that it would bring them closer to American values and not us closer to their values. And in fact, the reverse has happened. Yeah. And so at some point, America needs to look itself in the eye and be like, look, our policy didn't work. We need to adjust. And Hollywood, NBA, everyone will follow suit once America does that. But I think the 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 way to look at it would be how America treated Japan um, you know, in the 1930s going into the 1940s. They were a trading partner. They were an ally. They were someone... You could buy stocks of Japanese companies on the New York Stock Exchange up until just just before Pearl Harbor. So I, I don't. I, I think things can happen slowly, but the reality is this has been a twenty or thirty year poll. Maybe even go fifty years back to Nixon of trying to bring China closer to us. It's not working, and at some point we're gonna have a president that that realizes that, and then American companies will follow suit. Any thoughts on the currency manipulation that we used to read more about China and the dollar? No, the, the Chinese uh, understand that in order to uh, be accepted as uh, the world's dominant reserve currency, the most important thing is to create credibility for that currency. And you do that by stabilizing its value. And that's what they, they've been doing for years now. So the, 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 the yuan has not fluctuated dramatically relative to the dollar. They have not used the yuan in a predatory fashion to, uh, you know, create lower prices or what have you. Uh, no, they, they've, been, they've been very, very smart in the way they handle their currency. Let me ask a very forthright, honest question, and let's leave politics out of it completely. Is there a case here to be made for bringing more manufacturing back to the United States from China? Would that be a step in the right direction? Well, the answer to that question starts at Walmart, right? In other words, when your wife goes to Walmart, um, you know, what does she buy? And my wife always buys the cheapest good, right? You know, it doesn't matter where she goes. She's always looking for sales. She's always looking for the lowest priced uh, situation, right? So the net effect is, you know, can can if you brought the manufacturing back to America, could you create competitive products? In other words, I listened to the head of Pfizer, uh, you know, or, or Merck, uh, being interviewed on why are you buying ninety percent of the drugs that you sell from China, and the answer was because it keeps the price down, 
And if the United States wants us to make those drugs in the United States, they're going to have to give us some sort of tax benefit so that we can compete on a price basis with China. So yeah, obviously it makes sense to bring manufacturing back here. But if Americans don't want to buy goods made in America, you know, because they're too expensive, or in the case of the auto industry, they're inferior, I, I don't I don't see how you can do it. Well, in light of the supply chain shortages and what we saw during the pandemic, could that stimulate some kind of a move to bring more plants back here? Sure, but that needs to be done from a from a company by company basis. What what you have is it used to be you could increase your profits through financial leverage, and over the last couple of decades, companies have increased their profits through supply chain leverage. And when the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden supply chains get crimped, and you can't make your profits because of supply chain issues, it, you realize you need to have you know buffers into the system. And I think this is one of the things Dick and I disagree on is I think inventories are being built up, which is one of the reasons inflation is rising that will eventually dissipate. But in terms of, you know, you ask the question, can you make an argument? Well, of course, if you're the US government, you'd rather have an entire localized supply chain that's safe and secure entire in, inside the country. If you're a company working for profits, as Dick said, you're going to go where the cheapest supplies are. And it's up to the US government to set the policies, not, not the companies, because no company is going to choose um, to manufacture in Arizona, you know, I, I recall when Donald Trump was talking about um, his conversations with Tim Cook, he was bullying Tim Cook into building an iPhone manufacturing plant in America. And he came out and said, like, if we did that, iPhones would be $3,000. We can't afford to do it. And everyone kind of like looked around like, oh, I, I'm not going to pay. I'd rather pay $1,000 for my iPhone, which seems exorbitant, but, you know, it's better than $3,000. So, the question is, if if it were done abruptly, it would be a huge inflationary shock and a huge... And at least initially, Matt, I agree with you on that, yeah. yes. But if it was done over time through a strategic plan, and this is one thing that really frustrates me, is that we don't have long-term strategies between governments because, you know, you had Obama who made peace with, our, peace with Iran, and then Trump switched it back. You had, you know, Trump goes to war with China... And now Obama is kind of lessening, you know, or at least giving waivers to lots of companies on some of the on the imported tariffs. So we, we don't have a long-term strategy as the U.S. government vis-a-vis -vis China. It would help if we had a 20-year strategic plan that everyone agreed on and helped us at least decide what we're going to do for the next 20 years, which would give companies guidance and allow them to figure out what to do. And then it would give America citizens a, a way of knowing China is either our friend, they're our factory, they're our enemy, they're our competitor. You know, it, we, we don't really know. And it switches every four years what China is to America. And that, I think that's a huge part of the problem. Again, being non-political, but look at that fellow uh, somewhere in the Midwest or wherever, Mike Liddell, the Mike Pillows. I mean, he's, he can't sell enough pillows. He's running out of supplies and now he has slippers and every kind of product. And he pays his workers, I presume, decent salaries, and the whole community is thriving. We need more of that kind of enterprise and spirit of can do. Yeah, I was at Bed Bath and Beyond, and the My Pillow is a sixty dollar pillow, and there's five and six dollar pillows in the same bin right next door. I mean, you have to choose to buy that American product at a premium if you want to support Americans, and I think that's the problem. Is if you're going for the cheapest cost, American labor is too expensive. Well, that's where marketing comes into it. Apparently, a great pillow. I had a few over the years. <laughs> Dick, what says you? And is there any special message for the investors again here on, on these last few points with China? You cover the banking system. Where is that going to head You know, with all of these currents around us? I think they're going to benefit enormously. And I think that should be a subject uh, as we move into the, the next podcast, uh, because it's a longer discussion, but uh, banks will benefit from a war, all right? Uh, banks- We don't want war, let, let it be added, but that's well, just the reality. But, but, yeah, but they're going to benefit from it. But, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so worried about what's going to happen over the next uh, year or two, uh, that, that uh, it, it actually keeps me up at night. Uh, and when I, I've got 19 grandchildren, when I sit and talk to them about 
you know, where they're looking for college, a job, what they're looking for. I keep telling them they have to think about where this situation is going long term and position themselves to benefit from where it is going. And it is not going well, in, in my view, at the current time. And it has me very frightened. Matt? I agree. I, I, I'm very concerned. And I hope we have the leaders that can navigate this tricky water because it is, it is a very concerning time globally, financially, and domestically with our debt and and spending levels at unprecedented relative to GDP, it just seems like there's there's a lot that can go wrong and very few paths for everything to go well. We'll come back here again next week for another episode of Odeon Capital Conversations. I hope it's as stimulating and informative as this one was and, and the previous four, and I hope listeners got a lot of information here. It's been great, Dick and Matt. Until next week, take care. You were just listening to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstyne. Your host was John Aiden Byrne. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions, and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.